This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. This week the Supreme Court ruled that Nicola Sturgeon does not have the power to hold a referendum about the UK government's consent on Scottish independence. Fraser, is this a matter of case closed? Well, nothing is ever case closed for the Scottish Nationalists. Not even losing a referendum in 2014 was case closed, but that's the nature of of the movement. What I think this whole drama is testimony to is the SNP's ability to create kind of drama and doubt where there is none. Those of us who remember the passage of the Scotland Act and the rules of devolution remember it was very explicit at the time that there was no way the Scottish Parliament was going to be given the power to hold a referendum. The idea was that only the UK could decide on the future of the UK. So it, it says so explicitly in the Scotland Act, but still the SNP managed to go to the Supreme Court and ask for its interpretation of the Scotland Act. Now, this was always a bit of a... It was never really in doubt... It's a strange sort of theatre as well that belongs to other countries other than Britain. I mean, America, for example, will hang on what, how a Supreme Court interprets the Constitution. So the Supreme Court in America can decide something over the head of the government. That's not the case in the British system. What the Queen enacts in Parliament is law. The only thing the courts can do is implement the law. And if there's any doubt about the law, Parliament changes it. So this whole thing was never really a question. It was just a useful piece of theatre because Nicola Sturgeon needs to persuade her troops that the battle is just around the corner. So the very act of challenging it would seem like some kind of motion. In fact, the opinion polls show there's hardly any change from the last time Scots were asked in 2014. It's a bit more evenly balanced. It's about 50-50 versus 45-55. But there's been no fundamental change in attitude after Brexit, after Boris Johnson, after all of this. There is still no groundswell of opinion in Scotland demanding a referendum. But nonetheless, this is hugely important for reasons which I'm sure we'll return to. James, is there relief in government this week? I think there is relief. I think the verdict is slightly different from what lots of Supreme Court watchers expected. I think the, the, the kind of consensus view was that the court was likely to say, hang on a second, you need to pass legislation and then come back to us. Instead, the court said, look, the Scottish government needs to be able to get a, a view on whether these things are within its powers. And then I think, as Fraser pointed out on Coffee House this week, you know, if you look at the legislation, it is quite clear that a referendum is not within the powers of a Scottish Parliament, and so the Supreme Court was going to rule against them. I think the only surprise is when they've done it. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon, though, has now fallen back more emphatically than perhaps I expected on her fallback option of trying to use the 2024 general election in Scotland as a kind of proxy independence referendum. And I think there are risks for her in that approach, because even in 2015, when the SNP won 56 out of 59 Scottish seats, they didn't break 50% of the vote. And by the way, that was when they were explicitly saying that the vote for the SNP was not a vote for independence. Typically, the SNP has maximised its support by saying, OK, you don't like the Tories, use the SNP to send them a message or what have you. So I imagine that linking SNP voting with independence will shrink the nationalist vote. Of course, the question is whether you'd recognise the ALBA votes, that's Alex Salmon's party. But even then, I think they struggle to get over 50%. But even if they do, 
that is not a mandate to break up the United Kingdom. And I think Nicholas Sturgeon knows that. There, I did, uh, James, I'm sure, won't, won't be revealing too many secrets here when I say that on Wednesday morning when she was due to give her 11.30 statement, we were about to put the magazine to press and there was lots of excitement because there was a rumour going in Westminster that she was actually going to resign. When the Supreme Court went against her, she would recognise she was finally out of road and there would be no more Nicholas Sturgeon First Minister and she would quit. So we all got ready to report on this, which didn't actually happen. But, you know, this is fairly common in journalism. A rumour goes out, alarm signals got sent. And during that time, those moments of preparedness, I was making some calls, asking around, do you think she's going to do this? And I was struck by the number of people I spoke to who said, actually, it would make sense, because where does she really go now? She's been banging this drum for a while. There's no real change in public opinion. She hasn't really achieved very much domestically in Scotland. Even the Gender ID Act, which is one of her sort of signature themes, probably wouldn't get through without her support. So the SMB kind of game is up. Now, of course, I didn't call many nationalists. Most of my contacts in Scotland are fellow unionists, so I will admit to be given a biased point of view. But nonetheless, there, there is a sense that it's far from obvious where the SNP goes from here. Fraser, is there a chance that having the courts say no, having the UK government say no, ultimately gives Nicola Sturgeon a platform to say you're not being listened to, your voice is being denied, and, and stoke things in that way? That's certainly been her immediate reaction. So the immediate reaction was, let's dispense the idea that this is a, a union of equals, where there's now no legal way for Scotland to, you know, etc., etc. I mean, of course, nothing had changed. The, the day the SNP was set up, there was no legal mechanism to unilaterally declare independence. That's never been the case. So, of course, the SNP needs narrative, so it was claiming this, this discovery had just been made. But there was no change at all. I guess the one development, and this is pretty significant, certainly to Scots following the debate, that the Supreme Court also ruled that there was no such thing as a Scottish legal right to self-determination. It said, look, an occupied country might have that right, but Scotland itself does not, not a legal right. Now, this matters because if you look back to the sort of the architecture and the history of a Scottish nationalist, even the Unionist evolutionary movement, you had the claim of right in 1988, 1989, that, that sort of said that Scotland deserves the right. That was, first of all, to have its own parliament. But nonetheless, they claimed the right to demand the people involved in the movement. And then this, this claim of right mutated to the, the right to demand breaking away from the UK. But you'll find whether it's Italy, Australia, the United States, unions tend not to give that right to people. It's a fair, keeping the country together is a fairly basic part of the union project. I think Britain is quite unusual in that so you would allow a referendum. Spanish famously didn't allow Catalans a referendum. That had to be a, a wildcat one, which caused lots of consternation afterwards. So there is no legal method. There is a sort of sense of British fair play, if you like. Both Margaret Thatcher and John Major said that if Scots, majority of Scots, not majority, but if Scots generally wanted to leave the Union, they could. This has been defined as a supermajority or a plain majority. Thatcher herself said that Scots have exercised the right of self-determination by choosing to join the Union and also choosing to stay in the Union. That was, again, a point repeated in the 2014 referendum. So I'm not sure that the narrative of a Scotland held in the Union against its will really holds water. But nationalists, nationalism is all about such language, creating these 
sort of grievances and trying to pretend that there's a great democratic assault. But very much now the SNP's message is that this isn't about independence, this is about democracy. Of course, us unionists, Scottish unionists, would argue that we take these claims of democracy a lot more seriously if they had done more to respect the outcome of a last mass democratic vote not so many years ago. James, do you think when it comes to trying to, as Fraser me discussing, make a situation by which Nicola Sturgeon would find it hard to say your voice is being denied, Rishi Sunak could find himself in a position where he has to say what would in his view, justify a, a referendum? Yeah, so I think the challenge, I mean, there are two challenges for the pro-unionist side. One is, I think at the moment there is a majority for the union in Scotland, but it is a much narrower majority than people would like, and there is obviously a demographic imbalance with more younger voters skewing pro-independence. So how do you build support for the union in the medium term? And then I think the second point is you need to show that, you know, you heard it this week, Katie, who was sitting in PMQs, there's always SNP MPs try to suggest that this is no longer a, a voluntary union, that Scotland is being kept against its will. Now, I don't think that means that you need to set out the precise circumstances in which you would grant a referendum. But I think that the UK government should, should basically not say never. And I think at the moment the point is, there is clearly no great clamour in Scotland for an independence referendum immediately, and there isn't, doesn't appear to be a majority for independence. But I think, you know, I'm a unionist, but if it was clear that there was, you know, 60% plus support for independence for a sustained period of time for over a year or something like that, then I think the circumstances would have changed. But I think right now, you know, there was only a, a vote back in 2014. I think, don't think we are anywhere near that circumstance. By the way, I'd go a little bit further and I would say that if the Scottish Parliament, the majority of Scottish Parliament votes for a referendum, then it ought to be granted one by the UK government. This is a minority position and lots of people fervently disagree with me. You're probably one of them, James. Stephen Daisley, would, our, our colleague, would basically have me put in prison for holding this view. He thinks it's so... He uses words that I shan't repeat in this podcast, which he was <laughs> reminding me of on Monday. But so you're uh, staying in England for now. Well, political <laughs> asylum-seeking, shall I say, from the likes of Stephen Daisley. But Stephen basically thinks that people like me are the problem. We're far too genteel, far too... We're not committed, we're not patriotic enough. We're even by allowing the possibility of another referendum, we're encouraging the Nats so we should just close it down and shoo them away. Right Now, I will speak with some humility here because like many splendidly patriotic Scots, I live and work in London. So I'm not privy to these sort of the debates which Scots are having up there and I do appreciate it's different. But I do believe in a voluntary union and I think it's the only union that can work. And I think if the SNP was given ammunition to say that a majority of Scots want out of this union, but we won't be given a referendum because they're scared of what it might say. But that would, I think, increase the support for independence and weaken the union. So I, I do think the only... This is, by the way, why I eventually came to back Brexit, because I thought that you cannot keep a country in a union against its will. And I think that if a majority of Welsh were to want to leave the UK, I think they should be given the referendum and allowed to do that. I agree with you that... You clearly should not hold any part of the UK in the UK against its will. But I would also say that you can't have a continuous rolling referendum. We had a referendum in Scotland eight years ago. I think that, you know, both sides fought that referendum under the proviso that this, this was a choice, a really important moment where people would make a big decision and you wouldn't get to come back and have a do-over within a decade. So I think that is not an unreasonable position to hold. I think you do need to have some passage of time. Otherwise, you just live in a continual world of constitutional uncertainty. I think if you came back 
you know, once a generation had elapsed, I mean, that is a slightly different question. But I also think that, you know, but the polls at the moment do not suggest there is majority support for independence. I think if they, if they were kind of outside the margin of error, it was clear that there was sustained support for independence and a vote immediately, then I think that would be a different set of circumstances. And just finally, Fraser, what about Scottish Labour and all this? Because when it comes to the next election, obviously Nicola Sturgeon is trying to use independence as a key issue. But are we seeing a bit of a resurgence that could eat into the SNP vote? I hope so, actually. Um, NS Sauer was named the, the Glasgow Herald Mile newspaper. They, like us, had the um, political awards ceremony this week, and NS Sauer, the leader of Scottish Labour, was voted politician of the year. And he gave this um, pretty good acceptance speech where he was saying that he aspires to come first and not second. And it's funny, even though I'm not particularly Labour supporting, I did think to myself, well, I hope that's right. So I think he's an incredibly impressive politician, Anna Sawar. And also, when I want to arrange my various political priorities, I would rather live for an eternity in the Labour-governed UK than a single day in a fractured, disunited, broken kingdom. So if the rise of Scottish Labour will push away the threats of separation, which I still regard as a pretty serious threat, then I would be all in favour of that. And we are seeing, I mean, Anasar, he didn't do particularly well in the last first election as leader, but he didn't really have much time. I think he's being able to get some back some momentum now, and he doesn't have Jeremy Corbyn. I think Keir Starmer probably is good news for the union. I don't think he's as likely to be fooled by the blandishments of the SNP as Ed Miliband was to an extent, and certainly um, Jeremy Corbyn was. So that all remains to be seen. But then again, you, you have to remember, as a unionist, what worries me is that there are longer-term trends towards disaggregation, towards disunity. You can see this coming across in Europe. You can even see you know, the, the way that people are using their national languages and Eurovision songs now is reflective of an underlying importance people have on, on their own national identity. So secessionist movements are, broadly speaking, on the rise right now. And it would be a rather arrogant unionist to think that this was in any way game over. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, do rate and review the podcast, ideally if you like the podcast, and do so at the most convenient method. And also cast your vote as to whether you think Katie says... What's your word you say too much? Ultimately. Ultimately. Apparently. Yeah, do message in with any other ticks that we have. We, we love to hear. Um, thank you for listening. <laughs>